the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Take AM860, The Answer, with you wherever you go. With our mobile app, TheAnswerTampa.com, Alexa, TuneIn, iHeart, and at Radio.com. excited about the uh, the lockdown coming to a gradual end, but I'm also concerned about the resurgence of the COVID-19 virus, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. First, I wanted to clarify a few things. Uh, my neighbor, Roger, he said that he was a little concerned, or not concerned, but confused about my numbers on the amount of money spent on health care, and he thought that I was talking about military health care, and I was talking about uh, in our federal budget about the amount of money that the federal budget overall spends on Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the the CHIPS program, and even the VA, which is a a big chunk of the federal budget. And it's well over 50% that we spend on these programs. So I didn't want anybody to be confused and think that I was talking about the military. Now, the military has its own health care system for active soldiers, and they have their MASH hospitals and all that, and of course they spend a good deal of money too. The actual military budget that's allocated, that's mandatory, and has to be spent according to Congress is about 18% of the federal budget in 2019. Now there's this discretionary money that the president has which may add 1% to 2% to the military budget as a piece of the pie. So for every dollar that you pay in taxes, over 50 cents of that dollar is going to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, CHIPS program, the VA health care system, and only 20% or less of that, 20 cents of that dollar is going to the military. So let's put to rest all this nonsense that we're spending more money on the military than we are on our domestic needs, our health care and our 
retirement plans and our Social Security and, and our, our indigent people who need help with, with medical care, can't afford medical care. So let, let's, let's cut all that nonsense out. Let's put that to sleep. I hope that answers anybody's questions if you had a concern. Now, I wanted to tell you that I also got something from Roger. He's very active. He, he's retired, but he actually acts like he's a 50-year-old instead of a 75-year-old. So at any rate, I told him, what do you got for me? And he texted me a link to a CNN story that was actually based on, I skipped over CNN. I figure that's the, the, uh, the pablum for the masses. You know, you get a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and they give you one bite of this and one bite of that and make you think you've had a full meal. You haven't. But this comes from CIDRAP, C-I-D-R-A-P. It's a viewpoint on this, and it's, it's set out as sort of a research phenomena, although it's more of a look back at the literature, a review of the literature. Now, the CIDRAP is the uh, organization that is sponsored by the University of Minnesota. It's a department within their uh, within their school, and it's the Center for Infectious Disease uh, Reporting and uh, Prognostication, whatever it is. I don't know the whole name. And so they looked at a bunch of articles, and uh, they tried to project what the recurrence would be, how this curve would go with this uh, coronavirus. And they came up with uh, some information that looked back at the sars COVID-2 virus that went around in the uh, first decade of, of this century and also at the influenza epidemic and some of the other epidemics that have been followed, uh, the great influenza epidemic of uh, 1918, 19, and 20. And then there was a recurrence of this in the 1950s, another recurrence of this uh, avian flu virus in the 1970s when I was an intern. So it comes and it goes, and then we had it again in the, in the 2000s. So they looked at this, and they were talking about some of, the, some of the things that they came up with and why they think it will follow a certain pattern where there will be a big jump again in the summer or the, or the fall of this year. Now, here's the problem with this. They're looking at this from the perspective of the influenza virus primarily, and there are some big differences between the two viruses. The COVID virus that we're experiencing now is much more contagious. That means that you and I can catch this virus much easier from our fellow citizens than we can the influenza virus. The influenza virus over the past hundred years that we've studied it in depth seems to be infectious. If you have it, then you will probably infect two to three more people as you go through your, your course of the disease. The incubation period is also different. The incubation period for influenza virus is about two to four days. With the COVID virus, we don't know how many people you infect if you have it as you go through your day and walk through the grocery store before you have symptoms and you're coughing and sneezing and spreading the virus out. My projections are, based on the, on the limited research that I've done, that it's about 10 to 12 people that are infected by this for two reasons. One, it's much more contagious. It's much easier to spread. Number two, it hangs on droplets in the air much longer. 
than we previously uh, realized, and much smaller droplets as well. This, once again, is an airborne virus. It's very unlikely that you're going to catch this by touching a surface that has the virus on it, unless you're touching somebody's snot and then sticking your finger in your nose. I mean, this is just not how it's going to be spread. But uh, the, the number of people that will be infected by one person who has a virus, who's carrying it, is going to be in the, my opinion, in the 10 to 12 person range, unless they're quarantined immediately or quarantined before they actually develop the virus because they've been exposed to someone who has it. And remember, the incubation period for this is much longer. It's 2 to 14 days. So you can be walking around shedding virus for a week or two before you have symptoms, before you start with a cough or cold or shortness of breath or uh, pneumonia or whatever your symptoms are, fatigue, headache, fever, chills, all these things that come into play once we're symptomatic with this. That doesn't mean that we're not carrying it and we're not shedding the virus. It takes time for this virus to reproduce and into enough numbers and cause enough of an inflammatory response in our body that we will have symptoms. So those are two big differences between these viruses. Now we saw with the, uh, the, the influenza, the Spanish flu that they called it in 1918, 1919, actually it came from the United States, probably from a military base in Kansas or in that part of the United States and was quickly spread around the world because of the increased travel to Europe by Americans due to the First World War and the introduction of steamships, of cruise liners like the Queen Mary and the Titanic and all these ships that were going back and forth across the ocean and carrying people. Remember now, there was not air flight at that time. And within a few months, the influenza pandemic had spread around the world in 1918, 1919. We think that it may have started earlier than we initially had uh, hypothesized. And we also know that it uh, killed more people in the, uh, in the 18 to 38, 40-year range, 20 to 40-year-olds, and we think we know why. And you say, well, how do you know all this? Well, what happens is the epidemiologists go back and look at the hospital records and the death records of that era. And, you know, the hospitals actually kept pretty good records because the public wants doctors to keep records. So we keep records. It's gotten even more uh, ridiculous in this day and age. But uh, there were, or there was a big increase in young adult deaths, the 20 to 40 age group, during the pandemic, the influenza pandemic of 1918-1919. And so we know that there was no other cause for such deaths. There was, you know, a, a meteor didn't hit the planet. There was no volcanic eruption. Uh, there were no other pandemics going around. There was no cholera, no increase in tuberculosis or any other diseases that the doctors recorded. What they recorded were people with influenza-like symptoms and secondary pneumonias. And the death rate was much, much higher in the 20 to 40 range. Why? Well, there was a pandemic in the 1890s, which was probably related to uh, influenza as well. And that caused us to believe that that perhaps we're uh, 
dealing with a, a prior influenza pandemic that gave a bunch of people immunity, people that were older, that were over the 40-year age group uh, in 1918, 1919. So we think that we know why there was uh, such a, a difference in the in the uh, death rate. Now we have a death rate that's much higher in older people, and uh, we don't know for sure why that is, but we're investigating it. Hey, Joe, one of my uh, listeners says I'm fading in and out. What's going on? Not to me. You sound glorious. All right. Well, Roger, are you? Um, that's my neighbor. He's he's watching. Are you are you talking about the uh, uh, the Facebook or are you talking about the live radio feed? Text me back and let me know. We're working on it as we go, Joe. <laughs> no, you sound nice and clear. It must be the it must be that I'm in and out on Facebook. So I'm guessing that I'm streaming on Facebook, but there's something wrong. I've done something wrong. Oh, well, what can I do? I don't know how to fix this. That's why I'm going to have Joe and Yahuli and the whole gang down to the house later this week, and we're going to fix all this so that I am streaming live, up and running, and looking really nice on Facebook. So at any rate, we know that if you have been exposed to this H1N1, this avian flu virus, uh, in the past, and you've survived it, then you're probably going to have some immunity. And with the last big epidemic in the in the first decade of this century, those of us who were over a certain age had been exposed to this in the 1950s. And so we really didn't need to worry. We didn't need the uh, double or triple immunizations with the influenza vaccine because we already had some immunity. So we only got one shot, and that boosted our immunity. And so uh, that's why we know how this works. Uh, the epidemiologists over the centuries have studied this, and it's gotten to be more and more of a science. Now, we're looking at a curve here that uh, is so far exponential and then a, a drop-off. So it goes up on that, that kind of curve that gets steeper and steeper, and then it peaks, and then it drops back down. And so what the epidemiologists at, at institutes like uh, this, uh, this gang out of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota, by the way, it's run by a PhD, MPH, and they've got some MDs on there. It's SIDRAP, Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. Now, when you hear the policy added on, you know that this is not a, a conservative organization. These are liberals. They're public health people. And that's fine. We need public health people. But this is not really a research uh, uh, paper. This is a look-back paper with projections of what might happen based on what happened in the past with the influenza epidemics and the SARS epidemics in the, in the first decade of, the, of this century. Now, I, I disagree with it. I, I think that because of the uh, increased uh, infectiousness of, us, of this, that it's more contagious that is, it's easier to spread from me to you and you to somebody else. And because of the longer incubation period, we're going to have many, many more people infected before the, the beginning of summer, before uh, what summer began, June 21st, than we would have had with the influenza virus. Now, the influenza virus in 1918, although there was a big hump initially, and everybody thought that was the outbreak, there's some theory that there was a summer virus that went around, and then there was a lull, and then it came back in the fall and winter 
with, uh, with a vengeance and that the virus had actually been around longer, that it, it came from Kansas to New York City, and New York City being a big metropolitan area and a cosmopolitan international city, even in 1918, uh, it was spread all over the world within months from there. I don't think we're going to see that with this virus. This virus has already spread around the world. It did it in a matter of weeks because of air travel. Uh, it shortened the time. Uh, there may have been uh, uh, an earlier outbreak in, in November and then a lull and then December started back again and then January, February, March, we saw the world's uh, curve of, of different countries, their curve going exponential in terms of people who had this and who were dying. Uh, the studies so far in New York show that 20% of New York City residents have been exposed to the virus. And uh, in upstate New York, it's 2 to 3%. Overall, it's about 12 to 13% of the state that seems to have been infected with the virus. Doesn't mean everybody gets sick. Just means it looks like 12 to 13% of the population of New York State has developed antibodies, that is, their own protective mechanisms against this virus. And that says to us as physicians and epidemiologists and researchers that these people have had the virus or have been exposed to it. So if we have 12% of the population, now granted, you, you have to look at it differently because upstate New York and New York City are very two very different uh, uh, venues. You've got this tightly, densely populated uh, island city. Uh, it, most of the, of, the, uh, of the city is on Manhattan and on uh, Staten Island and Long Island. So you've got these islands that make up a city, and it's, it's fairly sequestered from the rest of the state. And over half the population of the state lives in the greater New York area. So, of course, you're going to have much higher numbers and percentages there. You've got more density. You've got more people going back and forth, more human contact, more people coughing on the streets, other people walking through their spray. And this is, uh, this, this is not unexpected, whereas upstate, 2 to 3% of the population has tested positive. And when you get out into some of the rural areas, it's almost nil, which is one of the arguments, by the way, for people saying, why are you locking us down in Schenectady or in uh, uh, Waverly, New York, which is a little town that I lived in for a year, when we don't have any cases, we don't have anything going on here, uh, or uh, Cornell University, you know, I don't know how many cases they've had at Cornell, but I doubt they've had many. And that's up on one of the lakes, uh, one of the Finger Lakes. And so why is New York mandating the whole state? Not that New York necessarily is, but, uh, you know, like Michigan, why are they mandating that the whole state behave as if it were Detroit when it's not? Detroit's, I think, still the biggest city in Michigan. And uh, a big chunk of the population lives there, whereas downstate and up in the upper peninsulas, there's probably little or no coronavirus because they're isolated communities and they don't interact much with the big cities. So the argument to continue the lockdown is that if you allow people from small towns to move about, some will go to the big city and they'll contract the virus and they'll bring it back home. So there's arguments on both sides. Uh, but I think that if we use some of our common sense, 
and we'll talk about this more as we get into the show, we can, uh, we can mitigate and we can alleviate some of the spread of this disease just by using common sense, social distancing, wearing masks, as I've been saying for six weeks now, Joe. And, you know, I told, you know, Joe, I told this to Barbara and she said, no, we can't put on masks at the station. That was in early March. <laughs> you know, and now, because I said, why not? So well, the CDC says we shouldn't. I'm like, what are you talking about? Who cares what the CD says? This is Dr. Bill talking. Oh, my God, Joe. They just don't believe me. Not yet. Not yet, but they're figuring it out now. So I'm telling you, folks, this, and I'll, I'll go into this deeper in the second half of the show, why this is uh, proving more and more to be a respiratory virus that's spread by cough and sneezing and people walking through each other's micro droplets that you can't see your spray. Uh, it's, it's, uh, they're so small. These droplets are micron sized droplets. Now, let me, let me give you a, for instance, uh, a pollen, which floats in the air. And if you get enough of them stuck together, you can see them like the oak pollen here in our area in the Tampa Bay area. And it looks like yellow uh, dust floating through the air. Now, those things are 100, 200 microns across each one of those little pollens. A red blood cell is five microns to seven microns across. You can produce a droplet, a big strong guy like Joe at the station. If he coughs or sneezes real hard, he can disperse a micro droplet down to five microns in diameter. And you say, well, doesn't that fall? A five micron droplet of mucus or phlegm with COVID virus stuck all to it, it's going to float in the air for hours, for hours. Now, does that mean that if you walk through that and get a five micron droplet in your nose that you're going to get the, the coronavirus, the COVID virus? We don't know. We don't know what the absolute number of viral particles are that you need to be infected. Probably not. Otherwise, this would have spread much further and faster. Uh, even though it's spread pretty far and pretty fast as it is. But we know that 50 microns to 75 microns is the average droplet size, and even that will stay in the air, in the atmosphere for 15, 20 minutes. A 50 micron droplet is not going to fall. Gravity's not going to pull that down as long as there's some air currents buffeting it about. And even in the grocery store, there's people walking around, there are air conditioning units and, and uh, ventilators blowing and movement in and out and doors opening and closing. And there are currents of air inside of a grocery store, inside of a Walmart or a Target or Costco's or Sam's Club or Harbor Freight. And so what you end up with is uh, air movement and particles that you have sneezed or coughed out or held up in the air. Even heavier particles, 50 to 100 microns, are held up in the air for 15, 20 minutes. So the guy who has the virus, but he's not that symptomatic, comes to the store. He's not wearing a mask. He sneezes and coughs in aisle five. He's long gone home. Ten minutes later, you walk down the aisle, you walk right through the spray. And you got the virus. And that's how it spread. It's not that he coughed on a can of beans and you picked it up. You're probably not going to infect yourself with a can of beans that has the coronavirus or the COVID virus on it. Uh, you'd have to stick your fingers in your nose or rub your eyes fairly heavily uh, to get some of that into your 
mucous membrane so it would then get into your system and you could be infected with it. And we don't know if you actually are capable uh, of, and what the viral load is, how much you need to get into your eye to be infected by this. We don't know all of the details of that yet. We're still learning. But we have learned a lot about how long this stays alive on surfaces and how long this will hang in the air and be uh, uh, infectious, this virus. And somebody asked me, are viruses, are they really, uh, uh, do they really exist? Yeah, they really exist. We can take an electron microscope and we can, uh, we can take pictures of these things by uh, shooting electrons, low energy electrons at a virus and we can get a picture of what the outer surface of a virus looks like. And the coronavirus has all these little uh, crowns, uh, it looks like little, little upside down uh, funnels sticking off of it and it looks like a corona from a distance, like a crown. And so that's why we call it the coronavirus. And those are what actually attach to the cell, those little things that are sticking out of it. And we can see it. Yes, they are real uh, existing phenomena. Are they live? Are they alive? Not in the sense that biologists think of life that it is self-replicating, uh, that it can carry on its own uh, uh, biological and uh, energy functions and metabolic functions, that it can... Uh, reproduce and, and make more copies of itself. Viruses cannot do that. They are inert until they attach themselves to a cell and that cell takes them in and then they uh, burst apart and their genetic material inside passively takes over the cell that they have invaded and makes more copies of itself. And you can say, well, that sounds like it's some kind of life form. Well, we'll call it a proto-life form. Now, one of the guys at the hospital, Mo, who I'm friendly with, he uh, he wanted me to look at this video from some guy who claims that uh, it's not a virus, that it's uh, our own internal toxins that are being released. Well, you know, I don't know how that <laughs> spreads as an epidemic. And I started to watch the video, and the guy starts talking about how smart he was when he was in kindergarten. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is nonsense. And I said, here, Mo. He said, what's wrong? I said, you know, self-praise is no recommendation. Have you ever heard that, Joe? I've heard variations of it, yeah. Well, self-praise is no recommendation. When somebody starts talking about how smart they were when they were in kindergarten, I'm immediately thinking, this ain't right. This ain't. This doesn't fly because what he's trying to do is convince me before he evens, even gives me his proposition his theory that he's right because he's so smart, and that's not how you do it. You do it by making the, the uh, supposition, by uh, the thesis, and then presenting the data that supports that. Well, you know, come on, there ain't no data for that. It's just baloney. This is a virus that is spread. We know viruses are real. We can image them. We can map their genetic material. That's how we know where this virus came from. We can trace it right back to Wuhan just by its genetic fingerprint. And if you think genetics don't work, go out and, and kill somebody and see if you can get away with it these days. It's tough to do, guys. I mean, it's tough to do in, in, in our country because they'll hunt you down with your genetics and everybody leaves a little something of themselves at a crime scene. It's just almost impossible not to. So we've traced this back to Wuhan based on its genetics. 
we know what it is. We know it came from animals. We know that, uh, or we're pretty sure that the Chinese had isolated this virus, and they have a number of coronaviruses that they're studying at this, uh, this biomedical laboratory in Wuhan. And our best uh, intelligence now tells us that this virus escaped from the lab at Wuhan accidentally. We don't think it was on purpose. And people have said, well, could, couldn't you use that as a bioweapon? It'd make a poor bioweapon. First of all, it's not killing the right population, which are the, the uh, soldiers, the young, young adolescents, early adults. So it's, it's hardly doing anything to them. So that wouldn't be much of a bioweapon if you shot a canister of that into the lines of, of uh, soldiers uh, that were in their 18 to 25 age range. Secondly, it's tough to control a virus like that. And the blowback, if you've got a wind that's blowing back at your own troops, guess what? Those viruses are so small and light that if you knock some of them free, they're going to come back into your own lines. So I don't think this is a bioweapon. Not a very good one. Uh, it's not fatal for most people. You know, the death rate is maybe 1%, one, of, one half of 1% from what we can tell. And it's, uh, it's certainly affecting the elderly more than the young people, which in wartime would probably be a good thing because, you know, you'd have to take, you'd have fewer elderly sick patients to take care of. And so I, I don't think this is a bioweapon. I don't think it's developed as that. I think this is a virus that was being studied by the Chinese and it got out of the barn. And we know this because we can trace it right back genetically. We can also trace these viruses given the time and the, uh, the resources, uh, we can trace the genetic fingerprint of this all the way around the world. We can tell from New York City where it's going. We can tell uh, because each time it, the virus reproduces itself inside of a cell, there's, there's minute genetic uh, changes that occur, little one-point genome changes that we can, we can document through our uh, through our our biochemistry and our uh, genetic fingerprinting, and so we can tell these viruses where they're traveling, how they're getting there, and we can, given the opportunity, we can even trace down to patient zero if we have that time, we have the resources, and and we have the material from the first patient, assuming that that patient lived and that uh, specimens were. Specimens were uh, saved from that patient. We can actually trace all this back to patient zero. So there's a lot we can do. Now, when we come back, I'm going to talk about why this virus lives and how it lives and uh, what surfaces it lives on and why you need to wear a mask. That that's the number one thing you need to do as long as well as taking care of your your personal hygiene, hands, etc. I'm Dr. Bill. I'll be right back. You'll with me, and you'll be right back with me. Talk to you guys in a minute. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Residents of the Thai capital, Bangkok, strolled its parks, booked haircuts, and stocked up on beer today as they exposed their, ex- enjoyed rather their first day of eased restrictions. Afghanistan's public health ministry announced today that 500 random coronavirus tests in the capital 
revealed that 150 positive results, raising fears the virus may be spreading faster than originally thought there. There are growing fears that a healthcare system devastated by four decades of war will be woefully unprepared for the outbreak. Meantime, in Russia, 10,000 new coronavirus cases reported today. That's the first time the country's daily total has reached five figures. And officials in South Korea say its troops fired warning shots today toward North Korea along their tense border. The military says North Korean troops fired first several rounds that didn't hit anybody. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments, so call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Balance of nature, changing the world one life at a time. I've had a lot of really great days back-to-back, which has been a huge blessing. Even my doctor told me, uh, because they asked me to bring everything in that I take on a daily basis, he was very encouraged by seeing what I was taking, and he he said he didn't care how many I had. He said it's food. And the form that at the end was something that he was very, uh, because he's an avid learner, and he's always researching, and uh, he's, he's always excited to see new things. And he told me, this will be good. This will help you immensely with the nutrition that you need. Experience the Balance of Nature difference for yourself. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order. Start your journey to better health today by calling 1-800-2468-751 or by going to balanceofnature.com. And make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code RESULTS. Take AM860, The Answer, with you wherever you go with our mobile app, TheAnswerTampa.com, Alexa, TuneIn, iHeart, and at Radio.com. Hugh Hewitt sees the president's support on the rise. Fox News poll, Trump job approval hits new high as voters rally during crisis. The networks that are not carrying his briefings are making the biggest mistake in journalism history. It will expose them as non-news organization. The Hugh Hewitt Show. Weekday mornings at 6 on AM 860, The Answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. A full day of sunshine today with a high 86. Tonight, clear to partly cloudy, low 67. And partial sunshine throughout the day tomorrow. Monday's high 86. Mainly clear at night, low 69. Sunny day for Tuesday, high 86. And a clear and moonlit night, low 71. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Kevin Snyder for AM 860, The Answer. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger Stand a little taller Doesn't mean I'm lonely when I'm alone What doesn't kill you makes a fighter Puts that fever rider Doesn't mean I'm over Cause you're gone What doesn't kill you makes you stronger 
and I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, coming at you on AM860, The Answer, and we're also on a whole bunch of other formats. I think we're on Facebook, and uh, what all are we on, Joe? Well, you can listen to your program on our station app, which you can, I mean, if you have an iPhone or an Android, you can just type in The Answer Tampa, and you can download it there. You could also listen on the iHeartRadio app. You could listen on TuneIn. You could go to the radio station website and listen there. And, of course, you can listen on the good old radio AM dial at AM860. And if you are in the um, Dunedin area, if you're in kind of Safety Harbor, Oldsmar, that area, you also can pick up 92.3 very well. So I'm, I'm sorry, 93.7 very well. So those you are know. the various ways that you can listen to Dr. Bill, your radio MD, or listen to the podcast after the show. Absolutely. And, you know, I think Mary said that you're also pumping or she's pumping it out or somebody's putting it out on some other venues like uh, social media. But I don't know, um, Facebook or something. You'd probably know more about that than I do. And you can also go to my website, drbillradiomd.com, and click Listen Live. And I guess we're streaming on on Facebook since Roger texted me that I'm fading in and out. So (laughs) I'll have to fix that. We'll do that this week, Joe. That's our project. Sounds like a plan. All right, so we're back and we're talking about the uh, the COVID-19, the coronavirus, or the Wuhan virus, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I wanted to uh, talk with you a little bit more about how this is spread and how this virus lives, where it lives and what it does. And there's some research that came out. Uh, it was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, this past week or two. And I believe it was a group, at, I think it was Harvard, can't remember where it was, MIT or one of the big big uh, universities did some research on this. And they looked at the, uh, the decay of the virus tithers, the number of viruses that were, quote, quote, alive, not that they're really alive, but that were still infectious, that could still cause an infection on different surfaces. And they looked at aerosolized, that is, spray. Uh, uh, they looked at copper cardboard, stainless steel, and plastic uh, as substances and surfaces that this could attach itself to and how long it would live on these surfaces. And, uh, you know, you'd be surprised at how long these little buggers can still be infectious. But the the thing about it is, is that they decay away quickly. The number that are actually uh, capable of causing infection uh, decrease rapidly. It's uh, for copper, it's almost a straight line, and so it's over, you know, 10 hours, and, and it's gone. Uh, now, for the uh, for the cardboard, it's it's a little bit longer. It's uh, 20 to 40 hours, but the number of viral particles that are actually uh, available are markedly decreased. You know, they're going from 1,000 per millimeter per milliliter to uh, 10 per milliliter over that time period. So it's a pretty precipitous drop, less precipitous on stainless steel. And it looks like it stays on plastic the longest up to 80 hours. But now how many of those particles are actually there that are, that are capable of causing an infection also decreases tremendously too. So it goes from, uh, let's see, 10 to the third or fourth or fifth, you know, 10,000 particles down to 10 particles over that time period. And again, we don't know how many particles you need uh, to what we call the viral load to actually get the infection. Will 10 virus particles cause the infection? Doubtful. And I talk about this because 
the nurses, I was on the COVID unit yesterday, and uh, our great nurses who I love and, and support and care about tremendously at our little hospital, they're rotating through taking turns being on the unit because, of course, it's high risk. And uh, they asked me about their shoes because some of them have little kids and, and husbands and spouses and, and significant others. And they wanted to know if uh, they should wash their shoes or take off all their clothes and throw them in the washing machine when they get home from the hospital uh, to be safe and take a shower and all that. And I said, well, you know, uh, you're, you're talking about something that's going to stick to the carpet or to a linoleum or a tile floor if you do have it on your shoes. And you're, you're talking about something that's not going to come off of the floor. And so I said, very simply, do you have toddlers that are, you know, little kids that are crawling around, rugrats on the floor that are going to lick the floor or your shoes? I, mean, I think it would be very unlikely. And even if a little kid did contract the virus, we don't see a whole lot of uh, ill effects for, for toddlers. It doesn't look like it's really causing a lot of problems. So I'm not sure that the surface is the main problem. Now, if you go into the drugstore or the grocery store and you pick up a can of beans, and I'm not talking about a can uh, of, of goods that has a or paper wrapper that's a high-gloss wrapper on it, which is going to be a lot less sticky and have a lot less viral particles on it than, than say, uh, stainless steel cardboard or, or even a plastic container. So you grab, let's say you grab a, a quart of uh, milk that's plastic, that's in one of those plastic jugs, and the guy before you had it on his hands, and he touched that, and now you touch it. Is there viral, or are there viral particles that are still alive? Probably so. How many? How many are you going to pick up? Well, I mean, you're probably going to wash your hands and, and clean them before you, you get home anyway or when you get home. And uh, remember, those viral particles are losing their ability to be infectious rapidly. Uh, they're decaying away pretty quickly. So we, again, don't know what the viral load is. You say, well, how do they figure all this out? Well, we actually have cells in, in uh in culture dishes that will uh, grow the virus, that is, the virus will attack these cells, and then we can uh, see how infectious it is by the number of cells that are killed, if any, by the virus. And so at different time points throughout the experiment, they would swab the surface at 10 hours, 20 hours, 30 hours, 5 hours, whatever, and put it into this little petri dish, this little uh, culture dish with live cells in it, and see what happened. And, and then they would count the viral particles. And yes, they are real. And yes, we can count them. We can count them in a number of ways. Uh, but guess what? Guess what? Aerosolization. Now, they used a pretty sophisticated uh, device to create aerosolized uh, viral load into a chamber that they could actually measure it with. And these, these devices that they use, this device that they use is capable of producing an aerosol that's similar to what we cough up from our bronchial tubes in our lungs and sneeze out of our nose. They're two different uh, size particles, uh, or, or not size particles, different uh, profile of particles, I should say. Uh, and so throughout this experiment, 
they noted that there was very little decay of the viral particles that uh, grew in the culture plates over a three-hour period. So it, it dropped from, let's see, well, let me get up here and see if I can read it. I'm getting a little blind here. From about, uh, about 10,000 viral particles per milliliter per cc of, uh, of fluid that they were testing down to, looks like about 1,000. 500 to 1,000 particles. That's not a big drop. I mean, it, it's a big drop uh, mathematically, but in terms of viral load to a human, you're going from 10 viral particles per cc per milliliter. And by the way, a milliliter is 1 30th of an ounce. We all know what an ounce is. That's a tablespoon. And uh, so that's not a lot. It's not a lot of, of mucus or or spray coming through the air. So we don't know exactly how many viral particles there are on a human mucus drop, but going by this, what we can say is that this stuff hangs in the air for three hours. Three frickin' hours, guys. If you think a mask is not important, then you're thinking bad. You're, you're, your thinking is defective. This is extremely important. And I told the nurses, I told, I told Mary and, and Tammy, I said, look, guys, uh, it's good to use hand hygiene. Uh, I agree. Take your clothes off and throw them in the washing machine. I wouldn't get too upset about your shoes, but if you have, uh, you know, if you have something you can step in, a little bath of, uh, you know, a little, little pool of uh, isopropyl alcohol, you want to drop your shoes into that just to get the bottoms clean or wipe them off with an alcohol swab, that's fine. But the most important thing is, and they said, you mean we need to wear our protective hoods and masks all the time when we're on this unit? I said, you bet your blue booties you do. You, if you don't wear those hoods and masks, those protective masks, those N95s, and the women and the men who go in and are in front line with the patients who have tested positive or are waiting for the results of their test to come back for the COVID virus, you're putting yourself at big risk. And how do you do this? Well, we've got these pretty cool-looking uh, headsets. They look like a beekeeper's headset, only they're more high-tech, and they've got a plastic front. And it goes over your shoulders and, and down on your chest and your back. So it, it forms a somewhat of a seal, and then it's hooked to a little uh, little butt pack on your back, and there's a tube that goes down there. It's got a fan, fanny pack, and it's got a fan in it and a HEPA filter, and it's a positive pressure system. So it keeps the pressure inside the helmet positive so nothing can come in. And it filters the air that's coming through the, the little fan in the back through a HEPA filter so that you don't get the virus and you don't get all the other stuff that, that comes in on the floor, on the ward, in the rooms where the patients are. And you know that there's COVID virus hanging in the air because we know for three hours with these experiments that it's still hanging in the air. Three hours. Three hours. Now, what difference does it make if it's on the floor and nobody's down on the floor licking it? It doesn't make a whole lot of difference. These are not things that are going to jump up and fly away. They don't have wings. And even if they did, they are so minute, they are so infinitesimally small that they couldn't even go a millimeter in an hour. But they can hang in the air on micro droplets. They can hang on your snot. And, and that's, no, that's no joke. That's no lie. 
Yes, practice good hand hygiene. That's important. Yes, be diligent in social distancing. Yes, uh, if you're a healthcare worker and you're on the COVID unit, when you come home, take your clothes off. A lot of the nurses and doctors at the hospital are using the scrubs, and they take the scrubs off before they go home and throw them into the uh, contaminated clothes hamper. And that goes to the laundry and special sealed bags. And uh, we do have places where they can change. They've got their own lockers. And the uh, doctors have their own area back in the surgical suite. And the residents and interns have their own areas. So we have the ability to change our, and get out of our, 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 uh, our medical skin, so to speak, our, our, our surgical outfits. And by the way, we do have plastic uh, uh, gowns that we wear. And we have face masks and shields that we put on. And, you know, since I'm not in there intubating and starting IVs and uh, wiping people's butts and doing all the things that the nurses are doing and the respiratory therapists are doing, uh, I don't need to be quite as, uh, as diligent as they are. I don't need the head mask or the head suit, the uh, space, space head outfit that they wear. That's something they need and we need to reserve for them because it's important that we protect their lives because they're the ones who are taking care of us and making the greatest sacrifice. But when I do go in and examine patients, and I've examined a few, you know, I do put on uh, a gown, the protective plastic gown, and we get one headset a day. It's a visor that's clear and it goes all the way from your forehead down below your chin and you put that on. I'll bring one home one, one of these days and we'll, we'll show it on Facebook when we get that up and running. And so these are uh, ways that we protect ourselves. And I also wear my uh, N95 face mask, which I've been wearing for weeks, by the way. Joe, you probably didn't know that. But I am. I'm being careful. And I, I started in early March. At the beginning of March, I said this was an airborne aerosolized respiratory virus. It's a cold virus souped up on steroids. And the best way to protect ourselves is to protect our airway, protect our nose and our mouth from viral particles and droplets of, of, of spray from people who sneeze and cough coming into our airways. That's how it's spread. That's 95% of the spread. Now, you can say, well, we know that there are some spread by hand contact, but that's been seen in hospital settings where people are knee-deep in, in the, uh, in the uh, excretions of patients who are uh, very, very sick with this virus and who are coughing and sneezing and who are on ventilators and who are incontinent. And, uh, you know, that, that's a whole different story. So, and I told, I told uh, Mary and, and Tammy, I said, listen, you guys, you've got to protect your airways. That's the first and most important thing that you have to do. And, you know, all of a sudden they both had on all their headgear and their face mask and their, their super duper uh, coronavirus uh, N95 mask. And, and that's important. You got to do that. And now you say, well, the CDC says that those face masks that everybody's wearing aren't that effective. Don't you believe that? Don't you believe that for a minute? I've read the literature Two-ply, tightly knit cotton face masks are almost as effective as those surgical masks that they give us when we walk into the hospital every day. We get a new mask every day. The three-ply 
the synthetic materials, the uh, poly, whatever it is, that is a blown fabric. Uh, so they take these microfine uh, threads of, of this, uh, you know, like polyurethane or polypropylene or whatever it is. I think it's polypropylene. And they're real small fibers, and they blow them together, and then they heat press them, and they do three layers of that. And so you have very tight-knit and very small pores, uh, and not much can get through. It's about 90% effective in, in capturing micro droplets, and the N95s are about 95% effective. A good two-ply or three-ply cotton face mask is going to be 85% effective if you use it right. So don't let anybody tell you. And I'm, I'm telling, I'm not, I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm telling you, I've done the research, guys. I've done the research, and I know what I'm talking about. And I've been harping on this for six weeks now, Joe. Seven weeks. Oh my gosh! And it's awfully, awfully important that you, uh, that you, heed my warning, because we don't want to spread this. And this is not going to be a double hump curve. This is going to continue on because we don't know how far it has spread. And once social distancing uh, is eased up, we're going to see a continuation of this. And it's going to ripple. It's going to ripple through uh, like a wave, uh, like a little wave on a pond, uh, like a little kid with a, a little stick dropping it in and out, in and out. And uh, I think that it's important that that we understand that this is not the same as the influenza virus. It's not going to behave quite like it. Uh, some of the pandemic, some of the epidemiology of it, some of the spread of it is going to be similar, but the age groups are different. Uh, the, uh, the contagiousness, the con how infectious it is, how easily it is caught and transmitted from one person to another are different. The number of people that one person who has it can infect is different from the influenza virus. So there's some very significant differences. And um, I beg to differ with the conclusion that the group up in Minnesota drew that, that I talked about earlier. And I think that uh, we're going to see, instead of the double hump like we had with the influenza pandemic in 1918-1919, we're going to see a persistent and uh, uh, rippling spread of this throughout the, the population throughout the world. And that may be exactly what we need, uh, and maybe we can get to 60 to 70 percent of the population that's had it and has some immunity, and that can be the firewall, the herd immunity, as we call it. Hopefully that will happen. Well, I don't know if this was any help for you guys or not, but it certainly made me feel better to talk about this today. How about you, Joe? You like it? I feel so much better, I can't even express it. Oh, my God, isn't he wonderful? Let me give you a hug and a kiss. <laughs> I can feel that all the way over here. <laughs> so what do we got about 30 seconds, 45 seconds left here? Almost exactly one minute. One minute. Hey, listen, I want you guys to know that we are doing telemedicine in the office. And so if you want telemedicine, uh, if you want to have a visit with me, call the office, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Give us a call. We'll set you up. You'll need your insurance card and all of your information. Uh, we accept MasterCard, Visa, PayPal. Um, uh, what's that other one that we were using? Uh, I can't remember. But we got all the, all the uh, 
accoutrements that you need. We can take your your uh, information and your payment over phone for your copayment. We accept most insurances. Uh, if you're coming from Canada or outside the country, you got travel insurance. Please get an authorization number before you call us, and we're happy to see you and treat you. It's pretty cool. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Love you guys. I'll see you next week. Joe, I'll see you later in the week, bud. Sounds and good. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs>